Jaspreet, who controls the world's money? Oh man, what a question. What a way to start. Well, let's put it this way. The United States has the world's reserve currency, the dollar. The dollar is the powerhouse of the world. Now, who controls the dollar? Well, the Central Bank of the United States is the Federal Reserve Bank. The Federal Reserve Bank is the entity that has the ability to create what we call money, the dollar, essentially out of thin air. So who, who controls money? It's going to be the central banks. And the strongest central bank would be the Federal Reserve Bank because they are the entity that controls the world's reserve currency. So is the Federal Reserve essentially a cartel profit-making corporation? Man, what a question. So the Federal Reserve Bank <clears throat> is interesting because you would assume, I think a lot of people would assume that the Federal Reserve Bank is a part of the government, and they're not. And this is not a conspiracy theory. It says publicly on their website that the Federal Reserve Bank is not a part of the government. So they're called the Federal Reserve Bank. However, they're not federal because they're not a part of the government. They're not a reserve. They don't keep cash reserves anywhere. And they're not a bank. You and I can't go there to deposit money. So what are they? Well, they are an entity, a private entity that's created that is working in conjunction with the government, not a part of the government, but in conjunction with the government to do two things. Number one, price stability, and number two, maximum employment. Those are their two mandates. Now, when you say, are they a for-profit entity or are they a cartel rather? Well, it depends on your perception of what a cartel is or your definition of a cartel. They have the ability to influence certain entities more than others. Let me give you an example. When the 2020 pandemic hit, the Federal Reserve Bank opened up the money printer. We saw more money printing than ever before in 2020 and 2021. Now, the question is, where did this money go? Well, obviously, we know what the government did with their money because the government spent money on things like stimulus checks, unemployment checks. They sent money out to businesses and corporations that we know that's the government side but then we also had the federal reserve bank side and the federal reserve bank did their own quantitative easing as well one of the things that they did was they gave money to the government right they bought treasury bonds that's a way that they give money to the government they loan it to the government but then they started doing something that they've never done before during the 2020 pandemic they started buying corporate bond funds, which to the average person probably makes no sense. What the heck does that mean? But this was the only time, the first time we've ever seen the Federal Reserve Bank do this. So let me put this in perspective. 2020 hits. Businesses don't have any cash in the bank because now people are not spending. No one's going outside and businesses don't have a big savings accounts. And now all of a sudden, businesses are starting to go on the verge of bankruptcy very quickly. This is before now the government starts unloading their financial spending programs. And now businesses are looking to raise money quickly. They're trying to get access to cash so they can continue funding payroll and running their operations. And that was when the Federal Reserve Bank 
decided that they were going to step in and loan some of these businesses money. A bond is a loan. So if a corporation wants to go out and raise money, they can go out and sell a bond, meaning get a loan. So now 2020 hits, corporations are now selling off some of these bonds, trying to raise money. And the Federal Reserve Bank is looking at this saying, corporations need money, they need loans. And they decided for the first time to start buying up these bonds, AKA loaning money to these corporations. Now, the justification is if we, the Fed, don't loan money to these corporations, they're going to fail. People are going to lose their jobs. It's going to be devastating for the economy. Sure. But now let's look at the alternative. How do they pick and choose who gets that money? How come certain entities get that money, but smaller entities might not? How come businesses or certain entities got that money, but regular people don't get access to the same thing? And that was what created a lot of controversy to people who understood this. And I think a lot of people didn't understand that this was even happening. But when you look deeper into what they have the ability to do, they can pick and choose who they want to give money to. They have the ability to print money. It's a pretty powerful power. Nobody else has that ability. But they also have the ability to choose where that money goes. In quote unquote normal times, it's only going to the government. Then that kind of changed after 2008, especially where they got really involved into the mortgage market where they buy up mortgage-backed securities. So that helps then the mortgage companies, the banks, the lenders. And now what we saw happen after the 2020 pandemic is they kind of opened that up even more that potentially they can lend money directly to corporations. And that's where the big question mark comes. So, you know, are they a cartel? It depends who you ask, and it depends on your definition of a cartel. So are you saying then that maybe there were some large or powerful corporations that might have had some political influence that may have received substantial loans? And then there were many smaller mom and pop type companies who really could have done with a little bit of support through these times, and maybe they couldn't get loans. You know... This is where people will dig forever and may never be able to find the right answer. And, you know, the question is, what is going to be my or a viewer's perception of the Federal Reserve Bank? And if, how do I want to live my life? Do I want to live my life thinking that, you know, they have this evil agenda behind them? Or, do I want to kind of have a, a different outlook where this is what they do? And then at the same time, the government also did open up lending programs like the PPP program for smaller businesses and other businesses. And I don't know. I don't know what, what goes on behind the scenes. And I also don't spend my time trying to figure that out. Instead, my time is, is spent trying to figure out, okay, this is what the system is. This is what the Federal Reserve Bank is. How can I understand this and use it to take care of myself, my family, and my community? And I'll give you an example of this. So 2020, talking about the same thing, 2020 pandemic hit. The markets were crashing. I'm talking on YouTube on the, yeah, I have a YouTube channel called Minority Mindset. I'm talking about what's going on. And I said why I was buying stocks. Uh, 
I had no idea that the Fed was going to open up this unlimited quantitative easing that they did. And that's literally what they did. It was called unlimited quantitative easing. Quantitative easing is essentially money printing. Uh, at first, they kind of capped how much money that they were going to print. I don't remember the exact number now, but I think it was just under a trillion dollars. They quickly realized that that wasn't going to be enough, so they changed it to unlimited quantitative easing. But before all that happened, I, I would talk openly about how I believe in the future of the American economy. And so I'm going to buy stocks because they're getting hit very hard. Now, when that was happening, I got flooded with comments of people saying, why would you want to buy now? Wait for the economy to collapse. It's going to get worse. It's going to be better buying opportunities. And I said, look, I don't know when things are going to bottom out instead of buying phases on the way down. And this is just what I do. I don't recommend what I do to anybody, just what I was doing. What I did not expect was the degree to which the Federal Reserve Bank then opened up the money printer, which then flooded money into things like the stock market and businesses, which then caused the stock market to rally. We went from the fastest stock market crash in the history of time to the biggest and fastest stock market rally in the history of time, all in a matter of months, which shows the power of the Federal Reserve Bank, the ability to then create money and throw it into the system. And so this is where you know my job as an investor, as somebody who wants to be financially educated, is A, okay, what is a good investment? Find good assets, find good investments, and then B, find good opportunities to come in and buy. That's my goal. I'm not going to sit here and spend my time trying to think, oh, what's going on behind the scenes in this political game? That's not where I spend my time. And so as an investor, I'm trying to see where I can put my money and be financially educated to take care of that. Now, a natural question people will probably think once they hear this is, what does all this mean? I mean, it, are, if the Federal Reserve Bank can print trillions and trillions of dollars, there has to be a consequence, right? I mean, if that's the case, why do I have to pay so much money in taxes? And there is a consequence. And that consequence is inflation. And that's the price that we're paying right now, right? We're seeing high inflation around us everywhere. So it's, a, it's, it's really now understanding, well, what is inflation? Because most people think that inflation is when the prices of things rise, and that's wrong. Inflation comes from the word inflate. And what are we inflating when you have inflation? You're inflating the monetary supply, aka you're increasing how much money is out there. So when you have inflation, the amount of money increases, which in turn causes the price of things to go, sorry, the price of the value of the dollar to go down, causing the price of things to go up. So the prices of things rising is a byproduct of the inflation. It's a byproduct of the devaluation of the currency. And that's what I think a lot of people really need to understand about what inflation is. Because now when you hear the Federal Reserve Bank saying we want inflation to come back down to 2%, a lot of people think that means the prices of things are going to come back down to where they were in 2019. But that's not what that's saying. Bringing inflation down to 2% means we want the prices of things to rise less quickly than what they are right now. It's not saying that we want the prices of things to fall back down. And that's that basic level of financial education where it's, okay, this is happening. What can I do now based off of what's happening in the system? That way I can take the best care of myself, my family, and my community. That's what financial education is. Thank you, Jaspreet. So I want to give you a bit of context here. I like to ask very short, incisive questions. That's 
my style as an interviewer. But I want to give you a bit of context because I kind of agree and kind of disagree with something that you said. And that is, I don't want to go down the wormhole of chasing every single conspiracy theory out there in the world either, like you don't, because in the end, you just get to a dead end and you just become paranoid. However, if we don't ask important questions and hold government, central banks and politicians, etc., accountable, they are going to do what they want because that is human nature. And I think in order to really know how to essentially use what we have as money to invest in an asset to produce more money. We have to know how the money system works. And to know how the money system works, we have to really go deep. Um, so a bit of context there in terms of where I come from. Because, for example, um, I think there are many benefits to the way that the financial system works and the instant creation of debt, because I can get instant debt for real estate thanks to the instant creation of debt from the monetary system. But I also think that inflation is a form of tax. And when they print trillions of dollars, they're essentially increasing my taxes, which are already high. So I, I kind of feel like I'm in this washing machine paradox. So first question then off the back of that, now you've got context of where I come from, is, um, is inflation essentially a form of tax? It is a tax. It's a hidden tax. And the person who bears the burden of that is a person who doesn't understand what inflation is, which means it's primarily the financially uneducated, the middle class, and the poor. Inflation disproportionately hurts the middle class and the poor, while it disproportionately benefits the financially wealthy and the financially educated. And why does inflation benefit the financially educated? So let's think of it this way. I'll give you just a real life example. When the stimulus checks were sent out, money was created, right? The, the government doesn't have trillions of dollars it's sitting on. They are in debt. They are running a national deficit, meaning they spend more money than they bring in as it is. So if the government wants to fund $1,000 checks to people, that money has to come from somewhere. And that money comes from money printing. The Federal Reserve Bank prints money, gives it to the government, the government then gives this money out. Now, People got these $1,000 checks. Now, what do you do with this check? Well, some people saved it. Some people invested it. But most people went out and spent this money. Where did they spend it? Well, some people had to go and buy their groceries at Walmart. Some people went and bought on Amazon. Some people used this money to go out and shop at Louis Vuitton and Gucci and other places. But this money was spent. So now, when you go out and you spend this money, where does that go? Well, if you spend it at Walmart... Walmart is making the money. Who's Walmart? Walmart is the shareholders of Walmart, the investors into that company. Who are the investors? Well, it could be regular people who invest in the company, but it's also institutions and banks and, and big hedge funds that own shares of companies like Walmart. So when, when this money is created, the value of your savings goes down. The value of your earnings go down because now your savings and your earnings have less buying power. That's what inflation is. Now, you go out and you spend this money at Walmart. Now, what does that mean? You own a smaller share of the total amount of dollars out there because more money is created. You take the money that you got and now you spend it. And now corporations like Walmart have a larger share of the total amount of currency, the total amount of dollars out there.
Who does that benefit? It benefits the shareholders of Walmart. It benefits the investor class. And this is where now, if you own the means of production and you don't have to be Walmart, I mean, you can be a investor with $100 and start capitalizing on this. But it's that mindset. If you own the shares of these companies where the money is going, you can benefit from that inflation. So you as a consumer get hurt by inflation because now consumers, people, everybody's a consumer, rich, middle class, poor, everybody's a consumer. When you have inflation as a consumer, you need more dollars to go out and buy your groceries. You need more dollars to buy a handbag. You need more dollars to go out and buy a vacation, period. So as a consumer, inflation hurts you because now you need more dollars to go out and buy things. As the investor, you own the place where the money is going. And then as the prices of things rise, when Walmart has to charge more money for their groceries, you as the investor own the higher prices of things. You get to sell the things that you own for a higher price. That's why inflation disproportionately hurts the middle class and the poor, because most people in the middle class and financially poor financial segment don't invest. They don't own the assets versus the wealthy and the financially educated. They're working to do one thing. They're not working to buy a fast car and a big home. They're working to buy assets. They're working to buy investments. So their primary income are their investments versus everyone else isn't. Yeah, something that people really don't understand um, is that inflation pushing the prices of things up isn't all bad because if you own assets, the prices of those are also pushed up in line. Correct. And that's where now, again, who does that benefit? And that's where it is what it is. And this is where the financial education is so important. And this is where I always try to hammer this home is we go to school to get good grades, to get a good job, to make good money, because we think that this is you know how we make more money. Like I grew up thinking that the better grades I got, the more money I would make. I thought it was linearly correlated. And no one really corrected my line of thinking. That was just kind of the way that me and everyone that I knew was raised that, hey, if we do good in school, you're going to get a better job. You're going to get a better job. You're going to make more money. You're going to be more successful. You're going to be happier and all that other stuff. Well, what financial education tells you, and this is what I learned the hard way, was that's a complete lie. Sure, getting good grades can help you get a good job and getting a good job could potentially help you make more money, but there's a complete different analysis of how do you become wealthy? And that is financial education because you will see people making $50,000 a year who will retire wealthier than people making $150,000 a year just because of what they did with their extra money. If you make $150,000 a year and you're constantly buying new cars, you're going on vacations, you're spending your money, you don't have any investments versus somebody who's making 50 grand a year and now you're putting money away every week to invest. It's a little bit of money, but you stay at it from the day you turn 21 to the day you retire. Guess what? You will retire wealthier than somebody making three times more money than you just because of what you did with their money. And that is the financial education that we're never taught. And so now when you have these things like inflation happening that most people have no idea about, 
Most people had no idea what inflation is prior to 2021. How do I know that? I used to walk the streets. I have videos on my YouTube channel of me walking down the streets of cities like uh, New York, Washington, D.C., Chicago, San Francisco, where I would stand there on the street and ask people. One of the questions I asked people, this is like 2018 or 2017, I would ask people, what is inflation? And the answers were, I mean, they're hilarious. It was a kind of a funny video, but none of the answers were right or very few of the answers were right. And people would always ask me, how many people did I have to go out and ask to get these questions? As if I'm trying to find, like pick and choose the best answers. No, these were just the people that I asked, the people that I, I talked to. This is the average idea or perception of inflation was completely wrong. Most people didn't know what inflation was prior to 2021. Now it's become much more aware because inflation has become a real problem. But we go through life not learning a thing about money, not knowing a thing about inflation, not knowing how inflation hurts us. And then we wonder why we're stuck in this rat race where we're working to get paid and we don't have the ability to live a decent lifestyle. I mean, just look at look at where life was in 1970 versus where it was today. Now, I wasn't around in 1970, but if you read any book, it'll tell you that in 1970, generally, it was a one-income household. Generally, the man went to work and that one income provided for the house. That's just how it was then. And that one income allowed people to buy a home, buy a car or two, go on some nice vacations, go on a vacation a year, pay for college, and pay for retirement, all with a one-income household. Fast forward to where we are today. We don't have one-income households anymore. We have two-income households. Now, with these two-income households, people are still struggling to buy a home. People are struggling to pay for a car or two. People are struggling to pay for that vacation. People are struggling to pay for retirement, and people are struggling to pay for college. Why? It all comes back to the same thing, inflation. Who creates the inflation? Well, this is what we talked about in the beginning of this. It all comes to the Federal Reserve Bank and the money printing. That's what creates the inflation. But most of us don't understand why this is happening. And then we start hating all the wrong things. Oh, my corporation isn't paying me enough. Oh, the government is greedy. Oh, banks are evil. And we start pointing fingers, hating everything without really understanding, okay, this is what's going on. This, this is what's happening. Now, what you need to do is be financially educated. That way now, despite what's happening, you can become wealthy. Because your job as a financially educated person is to take care of yourself, your family, and your community. That is my belief that you need to now get financially educated. That way you can do more about it. And, you know, the funny thing is I was actually on a podcast yesterday as well. And the host was asking me, so when is it going to go back to normal? I was like, define normal. What does that mean? Well, when is it going to go back to where it was a few years ago? It's not going back to where it was a few years ago. I think a lot of people, you know, it, it's understanding where we are, where we've been, and where we're going. If we look at how money has changed from 1970 to 2023, and now you project forward, where are we going to be in 2050? Are we going to be back where we were in 1970 or are we going to be more or more in the direction that we've been? 
it looks like things are going to continue going down where we are because inflation is going to keep happening. Inflation disproportionately hurts the financially uneducated. And if we continue to see inflation, that means people's ability to fund their lifestyles is going to shrink. Inflation means that your cost of living is growing and many times your wages are not keeping up with the rising cost of living. So some people believe that the fiat money system is a Ponzi scheme. And what they're saying is it's uh, an unsustainable devaluation of currency to the point where it's going to become worthless. Um, You may have heard Ray Dalio and Grant Cardone and people like that say cash is trash. You've sort of been intimating to that. Where do you think we go? Um, Because how low in value does fiat currency have to get before there's million dollar notes like they were in Zimbabwe or wherever, and they can buy you no groceries? Well, the benefit that the United States has right now is that we are still the world's reserve currency. Um, Now, does that mean we'll always be the world's reserve currency? Absolutely not. And so every entity, every corporation, every empire has a lifespan, including the United States, including the dollar. Now, what Ray Dalio talks about, which I highly recommend everybody to read his book, The Changing World Order, One of the things that he talks about is there are things that can improve your lifespan and there are things that can decrease your lifespan. And that's what you have to pay attention to. Now, if you look back in history, you can go back to as early as the ancient Roman Empire. The collapse of of empires, especially when you look at the currency, the same factors happen pretty much every time. With the Roman Empire, there used to be a currency, uh, there used to be a empire that ran on Uh, metals, things like silver. And then the government wanted to grow faster. They wanted to invest in more infrastructure and their military. And in order to do that, they debased their currency, meaning they took their silver and they mixed it with other cheaper metals and they started paying people. And at first it created an economic boom because now there's more money to go around, more money to pay people with and spread. But then eventually people said, this new metal isn't as valuable. The the debased metal isn't as valuable as the original metal that I had. And so people demanded more money. And so now you create more money and pay out more money and you kind of create this boom. And then people say, wait, I need more money now because again, this is devalued. And that devaluation of the currency was one of the factors then that ultimately led to the collapse of the Roman Empire. So now... Where are we today? Well, we are the world's superpower, the United States. We have the world's strongest currency. We have the strongest military presence, the strongest economy, but we're not backed by any precious metals. We are a fiat currency, like what you said. We are are just pieces of paper, but the pieces of paper are backed by a promise. It's backed by the promise that the United States government says that this paper has value. Why do people believe that promise? Again, the United States government has things like the strongest military, the strongest economy. So we have all these benefits. And that's where now you can start to see the risks. Okay, what if one of those things fail? What if we no longer 
have the strongest economy? What if our economy starts to slow down? What if people start to lose trust in the dollar? What if countries around the world start to distance themselves from the dollar? Now you can start to see what might be happening because as we start to see more and more of those things happen, you bet that people will want to distance themselves. As people distance themselves, that could cause the value of the dollar to go down. And if that were to happen, it would just create an utter chaos. I mean, a currency crisis is something that is extremely difficult to fight. We know how to fight a recession. We, we've done it pretty much every decade for the last century. We know how to boost the economy. But currency crises and hyperinflation are significantly more painful, significantly more difficult to solve. And that is the real concern. But I think what people should also understand is it's not something that happens overnight. Uh, it's not something that happens in six months. It is a long-term process. However, that doesn't mean you, should, you shouldn't think about it. That means you should always protect yourself and invest your money in ways that way you can benefit from no matter what happens because your job isn't to be a panicker. No good financial decision is made out of panic or fear. But your job should be to understand what's happening that we can take better care of yourself. So these discussions we're having, why are they not taught in schools and colleges and universities around the world? Why do our parents not know this? Because if you think about it, if we all had better financial education, more would produce. We could probably stimul have stimulus for the economy ourselves and not just rely on governments. Wouldn't you know, the rising of the tide lift all ships? Why, why is this not common knowledge? Who would teach it? And see, the, the question then is who's going to teach it? Uh, teachers many times don't understand this uh, because they were never taught that. So who's going to teach it? Is it going to be banks that come in and start teaching this because you know they're going to have their own agenda? Is it going to be corporations that come in and teach it? And so this is where... You know, what has been happening, I think Robert Kiyosaki, the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, really, really <clears throat> highlighted this, was that rich people teach the kids this. But if you don't learn this from your parents, then where do you learn? Now, thankfully, YouTube is, has made financial education so much more accessible uh, because now if anybody wants to learn about money, you can watch hours and hours and hours of free content to start learning but it's it's diff very difficult because on one hand you know the question is who's going to teach it number two is then do institutions want people to learn i mean the reality is it is profitable to keep people poor it's a fact uh if if more people were financially educated what would happen well banks wouldn't necessarily like it because less people are going to want to go into credit card debt to finance a Gucci wallet or a Gucci purse, because you're going to realize that's a bad, that's a liability. You don't want to pay interest on a liability. Corporations might not like it because now before you go out and spend money, you might think twice and say, you know what, maybe I should invest this money instead. And yeah, it would, it would definitely hurt the economy in the short term, which is not good for the government either. But over the long term, that could build much more sustainable generational wealth for families across the board. And that's where, you know, what I'm trying to do is help spread that financial education 
I even built a K through 12 curriculum for free. Uh, I, I created this because I used to guest teach in Detroit public schools. I started learning about the real struggles people have learning about money. And I was so frustrated, partially because what I saw, and then also because I never learned a thing about money. I never grew up learning about money. And that was so frustrating to me because I checked all the boxes. I was doing good in school. I was thinking I was going to become a doctor. I was getting good grades. I was busting my butt. I, was, I mean, I was doing what I was supposed to do. And then I started learning about money. I started learning about investing. I started learning about financial education. I started learning about entrepreneurship. And I was like, what the heck? I have gone through so much schooling and I never once learned a thing about passive income or wealth or building any sort of financial freedom. And so that frustration made me want to go out and create a curriculum. I gave it away for free. And then um, the idea was maybe I can go pitch this to uh, the school system. I tried, I started, and then I realized how stupid and difficult it is to get things into that. Because once the school system is very politicized uh, in the sense that teachers have to teach what they're taught um, and teachers really are not given a lot of freedom, which is, you know, there's arguments on both sides, but then it's very difficult for teachers because now if you want to teach something, you got people hovering down your throat to see what you're teaching. And there's a lot of teachers that watch my content and uh, they would tell me about this, that they would show my videos. So then I created this curriculum and many teachers were like, you know, I'm not allowed to teach this, but I can, uh, I've been kind of going uh, outside of what I'm allowed to do to teach this. And getting things into the school system is very difficult. I, I just couldn't deal with it, but I, you know, gave it away for free. If anybody, a teacher or parent wanted to use that as a resource. So it's, it's, it's very difficult to teach true financial education. Now we are starting to see some schools talk about things like budgeting, uh, savings and other things, but you know, the reality is there are some core topics of life. Money is one of them. Health is one of them. Relationships is one of them. Spirituality is one of them. Core topics of our life that if you want to learn this, you're going to have to go out of your way to learn it. And thankfully, YouTube podcasts have made it much more accessible, but it's a double-edged sword because now you have to really pay attention to who you're learning from because there's some really bad teachers out there. There's some also really good teachers. And so the only advice that I have on this is learn from both sides, learn from people that disagree with one another, and then find what's right for you because there's a bunch of crap on the internet just as there is a lot of gold on the internet. So find what's right for you. So one of the things we seem to hear a lot, you know, you talked about savings and saving money. Um, but if we're in relatively high inflation and we have a financial system that can essentially devalue our savings very quickly without our permission, um, is that not outdated advice to save money? And is, a form of, is the fiat currency that we receive in exchange for our labor, is it not best to get it out of that form as quickly as possible into a stronger asset class? So if you think the dollar is going to collapse tomorrow, don't save any money. But if you believe in the future of America, if you believe that we are the strongest economy in the world, then yeah, you definitely want to save some money. Now, the question is, why are you saving and how much? 
I don't say like growing up, I was told the extent of my financial education was work hard, become a doctor and save as much money as possible. Uh, that was, that was it. But that's where saving all of your money is also dangerous because you're never going to become wealthy by saving your money. And I think that's where um, people like me, I thought savings was the path to wealth. If I build a big bank account, I'm going to be wealthy. And that's a complete lie. Your savings are there for A, to protect you against an emergency. And then you should save money to be able to make a big purchase. You want to buy a home, you want to buy a car, you need money to do that. And then C, save money to make an investment, period. If you're not saving money for one of these three reasons and you're just saving your money to save it, your savings are losing value. Because the reality is what you said is correct. If your savings are losing value to inflation, your savings are 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 losing. I mean, you, you're, you, are, you are slowly becoming poorer each and every day because your savings are losing value to inflation. But you're going to need money to go out and buy a home tomorrow and next week and next month and the month after that. And so it's it's being able to now understand this and balance the practicality of life while also understanding that inflation happens, right? Don't save all of your money, but if you're going to save, save with a purpose. And understanding that if you want to go out and make, buy an investment, because I recommend investing your money. I mean, I can't tell you what to invest in, but I, I, that is the way that you can protect yourself. You need to have money to be able to invest. Now, there are, there are hedges to inflation. Like I own some physical gold. Every month, I buy some physical gold. It is a piece of my portfolio. It's about 2% of my total investment portfolio, but it's a piece of my portfolio. And why do I own gold? For me, that is my doomsday insurance. It is my hedge against inflation. Uh, but I don't sit here and monitor the price of gold. I don't treat it like an investment. I, I don't even monitor the price of gold. I have an automatic system where every month I'm buying a little bit of gold. And it happens no matter what. And the reason why is because, kind of like what you said, my theory is if I took $10,000 with the gold today, and I took $10,000 with the cash today. I took it to my backyard and I buried it. And then 10 years later, I dug it up. My theory is that my gold is going to be able to buy more than my cash. So yeah, I mean, there are ways that you can protect yourself against inflation. But the reality is cash is still around today. And there are places where you can get some interest on that cash now. I mean, high interest savings accounts pay you more than 0.01% now, finally. Um, but it's still not going to beat inflation. And so that's where now you got to understand kind of all the different dynamics, be practical, build your wealth. But also, you know, I don't like to live my life with, you know, complete thinking the world's going to end tomorrow, right? You have to have some sort of optimism in the economy and in the world if you ever want to make any money. But also understand the Wall Street saying bulls make money, bears make money. It's pigs that get slaughtered. And it's it, this is where, you know, you can have whatever perception you want, but your investing strategy just has to, you just can't get greedy with whatever you do. So the people who really evangelize over Bitcoin, because um, there's quite a few of them out there, uh, you know, they would argue that uh, pretty much all the downsides of fiat currency, Bitcoin doesn't have those downsides. For example, um, fixed limited supply, inability to be manipulated, um, decentralized, um, much more efficient store of value, ease of transportation, etc. What are your thoughts on that as a concept 
to maybe future replace fiat currency? I like cryptocurrency. I also own cryptocurrency. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really add a disclaimer here. In my investment portfolio, 80% of my portfolio is stocks and real estate. And this is outside of my own businesses. So 80% is stocks and real estate. 2% is gold. That leaves 18% of what I call speculative investments. This is now the startups that I invest in. And then this is cryptocurrency. I believe in crypto. I believe in the value of the blockchain. So I own crypto. But I also understand it's very volatile. It's very speculative. It could go down to zero tomorrow. And I understand that. But the reason why I got into buying cryptocurrency was because it was practical for me. I have contractors that work for me overseas. And previously, I was banking with a bank where I had to go into the branch to wire my contractor money. And I couldn't do it through PayPal because their country didn't accept PayPal and a couple other um, payment sources, the country didn't accept it. So I would have to wire him money. Then I came to California because I had to do some work out here. I received an invoice and I hate having invoices loom over me. I like to pay people as I get paid. That way, I just don't like having people wait for me to pay them. But there was no bank. My, my bank that I had was not near me. And it was a huge headache now to go out and find a bank, wire him the money. And then he asked me, do you have crypto? Can you pay me in crypto? And I said, yeah. So I went on to uh, my brokerage and I sent him some cryptocurrency. And in seconds, not only did he receive the currency, but the fee was a fraction of what I was paying to wire him the money. And that was where I had that kind of aha, like, oh, wow, this is like really useful. These use cases are just getting started. So yeah, there is absolutely a lot of value that could be there with something like Bitcoin. However, the, the issue and the problem that has arisen is a lot of people look at cryptocurrency like a way to get rich quick. And people are looking at it as a gateway to riches. When, yeah, if you bought in and, you know, when it was first started years ago, you were able to make a ton of money. But then people are constantly trying to chase the hype. And then you get in for the wrong reasons. You don't believe in the technology. You don't believe in the value. You just want to get rich quick. And then you see the market turn very quickly. And then you don't understand the volatility of cryptocurrency. You lose a lot of money. You get angry. You hate the system. You hate cryptocurrency. You think everybody's a scam. That is the problem that we have with cryptocurrency today. Now, what does this mean? I don't really care. Again, the volatility doesn't bother me. I know that's a part of cryptocurrency. That's why I believe in it. I think there's a ton of value with something like Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin has the ability to really change the way we look at money. And I think there's, you know, as the younger generation gets older, as they have more influence, as we see more changes happen with money, that gives the potential for something like Bitcoin to really rise. So, yeah, there's a lot of potential there. But again, it's a slow moving thing. And the people that come in thinking it's going to be a way to get rich quick and the gateway to riches overnight, those are the people that keep getting burned. Those are the people that hate cryptocurrency, the people that call it a scam versus people that understand it, believe in it, believe in it for the long term and want to hold on to it for the long term value that it could potentially provide. But also understand it's a risk because no one can predict the future. And so that's, I mean, that's really what investing is all about is trying to find what you believe is the next opportunity, 
buying it and, and, and believing in it, but then also understanding the risk that's involved with it. So as a real estate investor yourself, um, I would love your take on one of the biggest discussions on the internet, which is, should you buy or rent your own home? Well, I think the, the reason why that's such a debate is because people who say you should buy a home believe it's the greatest investment of all time, the home that I live in. But that's one of the biggest lies when it comes to real estate. No wealthy person in the history of time has talked about how they became rich because they bought a home and then they paid off their home. It doesn't work like that. People assume that buying a home is the key to generational wealth. But what you have to understand is buying a home is good. There's nothing wrong with buying a home, but you have to understand what it is. It is not. It, if you want to make a good investment, buy a rental property. You want to make a good investment, invest in a business, invest in stocks. Your home is completely different because your home is a money pit until you sell. And then you have to hope that you can sell it for a profit. Now, yeah, if you bought your home 20 years ago for $200,000 and it's worth a million dollars today, you might feel rich. But let's really quantify that because when are you actually rich? If you bought your home for $200,000 and now it's worth a million and you sold it, you got a million dollars in your pocket. That's great. And now if you go and rent an apartment for $1,000 a month and you have a million dollars in the bank account, you are now richer. Great. But what ends up happening to a lot of people is you live in this home, you bought it for $200,000, it goes up in value to a million dollars. And now you want to upgrade the home. You want to upgrade the kitchen, you want to upgrade the bathroom, you want to upgrade the appliances, you need money to do that. If your income can't support that, what do you do? Well, you got all this invisible equity in the home. How about we pull some cash out? Now you do a cash out refinance, you got some money in your pocket, debt free, let's go. Now you go out and you start upgrading the home, you start upgrading the appliances, you're increasing the value of your home, you think, and everything is good. But also what you have to remember is, as your home becomes more valuable, your property taxes also go up. How do you pay for the property taxes? You have to pay for it from your income. Your home doesn't pay for the property taxes, unless you do this cash out refinance and now you use your debt to pay the property taxes. Your insurance bills are also gonna be higher because the insurance is gonna depend on the valuation of your property. So now as the value goes up, your insurance payments are higher, and now you have to pay for that as well. How are you gonna pay for that? Your income has to pay for that, or use the debt to do that. And then you also have the risk, because now let's just say you pulled out some cash in this home, things are great, everything is good, you bought yourself some nice things, you have this cash in your pocket, and then the economy goes down. And let's just assume that property prices fall by 50%. Just we'll give an extreme example. We've seen it happen before. We all remember 2008. So it's definitely possible. In Detroit, home prices fell by as much as 91% in some areas. So yeah, I mean, it, it's happened before. If you pulled out a bunch of cash, you might owe $800,000 on this home. If the home now is worth $500,000, you are now underwater on the property that you thought made you wealthy. And now what? Well, you can continue making the debt payments, but again, remember, you need the income to make those debt payments. You have to keep making the property taxes. You have to keep paying the insurance, and that income has to come from you, not the home itself. When you buy something like a rental property, it's completely different. You buy, let's just say, a single-family home to rent out. And now let's just go with the same numbers. You bought this home for $200,000. 
and property values go up. Well, now you have to pay for the same bills. You have to pay for the property taxes. You have to pay for the insurance. You have to pay for the maintenance. You have to pay for the upgrades. But these bills are not paid through your income. They're paid through the property's income. This property is going to be rented out to somebody, and it's going to generate rental income. And if a property value goes up to a million dollars, I bet you that your rental income has also gone up significantly from the time you bought it from $200,000. So now this property is paying you more money. If you pulled out cash, you're also going to be making the payments on that debt from the rental income. So now it's a completely different way of looking at it. So now going back to the question of renting versus buying, which one is better? It depends on what you, what you want. There's nothing wrong with owning a home. But you have to understand why you're owning a home. If you want to own your home, fine. But you have to be able to afford it. Being able to afford it means, number one, you have to afford the down payment. B, you have to afford the monthly payment. And C, you have to afford the move-in costs. Most people forget part C. Because when you move into a new home, oh man, number one, getting movers is expensive. Number two, what happens to everybody? 100% of the time when you move in, you want to make it your own. So that might mean getting you appliances. That might mean getting you furniture. That might mean updating the kitchen, updating the bathrooms, updating the basement. All these things cost money. So if you're okay with that and you can afford it, fine. Nothing wrong with that. But make sure you can afford it first. Don't get into this trap of thinking that you have to own a home because everybody says that by the time you're 35, you need to be a homeowner because that's how you build generational wealth and you can pass it down to your kids. That's a, I mean, that's one of the worst ways to build wealth. If you want to build wealth, go out and buy a rental property. Go out and buy some investments in the stock market because now you can reallocate the down payment you would have put on the home to these investments. So again, it's a personalized decision and you have to understand what it is that you want to buy. There's nothing wrong with buying a fancy car as long as you can afford it. There's nothing wrong with owning a home so long as you can afford it. The reason why so many people get into trouble, there was a statistic. I forget what the exact number was, but it was more than 50%. The majority of homeowners regret their decision after they go out and buy a home because they didn't realize the true cost of homeownership. And so if you're on the path of building wealth and you really want to focus on building wealth, your money could potentially be better used renting so you have more money to invest and understand that and then really make a financially smart decision when you go out to actually make the home buying or renting decision. So thank you for the detailed explanation. I wonder if that um, narrative or that story, I wonder if that's changing now because you know, there's a lot of people, especially um, in America, who are saying the opposite now, that um, essentially um, buying a home is dumb uh, and renting is a lot smarter. Now, I'm from the UK and it's probably a bit different, but just want to throw a few things at you because I think I'd like to just drag this discussion out. One more question. So let's say you buy your own home. You add value to it. You buy it below market value. You buy the worst house on the best street. Um, so you know there's some equity there. You do a bit of a refurb, which helps add the value. You don't keep refinancing it every three to five years. You just pay your mortgage down over time. The property's double. You, you've got a history of a thousand years in uh, the UK to see that property will double about every 12 to 15 years. Has since 1088 when they first started recording land and real estate values. Um, so it does go up the, the amount you want. You pay down the mortgage over time, so the um, living costs aren't dead money because rent is 
all dead money because you still got to live somewhere unless you can live with your mum and dad. You get um, relief. Um, you get tax relief in the UK, i.e. if you buy a home and it goes up in value and you sell it and you buy another home, you get the tax relief. So there's quite a lot of tax reliefs um, in owning your own home. You learn to manage money really well. You can also get good credit. Your credit score really improves when you own a home and you're on the electoral roll. And so therefore you're more investable and lendable because maybe you can't get a mortgage for an investment if you don't even live in your own home. I mean, who's going to lend you money for that? Um, and then let's look at it from the rental side. So everything you said about moving, I really agree with you, Just Britain. No one talks about moving costs, but you might have to move every six months when you rent because your, your landlord might kick you out every six months. Bye. And you've got to do that every six months and all the money you spend on the house is making the landlord money uh, and not you and the landlords can put the rents up on you the rents have gone up 30 percent in the uk in the last sort of what 18 months i know because i own 360 properties and i've put all the rents up on them and a hundred percent of rent is dead money but maybe only 65 percent of interest payments um is dead money and then of course that'll go down over time um what are your thoughts on that? So rent is dead money, correct. But so is when you go out to eat at a restaurant. When you go out to eat at a restaurant, you're paying for the landlord's rent. You're, you're, I mean, you're paying for the restaurant owner's rent. When you go out and you shop at the local grocery store, you're paying for that grocery store's mortgage or rent. But when you get those values, the value of eating at a restaurant, the value of shopping at a grocery store, we don't talk about, oh, you're paying somebody else's mortgage. But when we talk about it in the sense of where you live, then it's immediately, oh, it's dead money. Everything you spend on a liability is dead money. Whether it's your rent, whether it's your car, whether it's your groceries, whether it's the vacation, it's all dead money. The question is, where is the best place to put that dead money? And if you get a certain value out of the rental property, okay. Now the question is, you have, we can go with this analogy, dead money and alive money. Alive money is the money that's making you wealthy, right? These are your investments. You want to have as much alive money as possible. You talk about how you own the rental properties. That's alive money because it's making you wealthier. Your dead money is the money that's not, right? Assets versus liabilities. Dead money, alive money is the same thing. If you don't have the ability to put down a down payment, if you don't have the ability to afford owning a home, because owning a home also means that now when the window breaks, it's your responsibility. If something goes wrong with the home, it's your responsibility. The upgrades are your responsibility. And I'll tell you this because I used to be a licensed realtor. When, when you go out to buy a home, the pitch is from everybody, the realtor, the banker, everybody, your friends, that your home is the biggest investment that you're going to make. And when you're told it's the biggest investment you're going to make, what ends up happening to a lot of people is you end up buying bigger because you think this is going to be a great investment. So let me buy a home that's a little bit bigger. Let me stretch it just a little bit bigger. And if now, I'm going to say this again, if you are stretching yourself so thin that you no longer have the ability to invest, which happens all the time here in America, because you want to have the big, nice home with the big yard, with the big basement, because it's a big investment. And now you no longer have the ability to actually invest because you think you're investing by paying down your mortgage. You're doing it all wrong. Now, like what I said just a minute ago, there's nothing wrong with owning a home. There's a lot of benefits to owning a home, like some of the things that you mentioned. <coughs> however, however, you should not go out to go out and buy a home at the expense of being able to actually invest your money.
If you can afford the home and you still have the ability every month to put money aside towards your investments, fine. Nothing wrong with that. But if you're buying a home and now you no longer have the ability to go out and make your investments because all of your money is going into making your mortgage payment, you're doing it all wrong. And that's what ends up happening when you think that the home that you're living in is going to be the best investment that you can make. Thank you. <laughs> um, we do a quick fire round. Are you up for some quick fire um, questions? Absolutely. Let's go for it. Would you rather have one million cash right now or one million engaged, loyal followers on any social media of your choice? It might be your YouTube channel. Which one and why? Well, I have a million on YouTube and I can tell you that you can make a lot more than a million dollars with a million social followers. So if we're looking at it purely from a financial standpoint, you can make way more money with that million followers. And you can inspire and influence a million people. Yeah, which is even better. Can money buy happiness? Money can make somebody who's happy, happier. It cannot take a miserable person and make you happy. Money will pay your bills. I'm gonna, this is going to be a much longer question answer than what you want because I love talking about this. When you don't have money, you want money because you want to be able to pay the bills. You want to be able to go on the vacations and have the cars that you never wanted. But what ends up happening to so many people is we chase money thinking that money is going to fill a hole inside of us. Money can get you a car. It can pay your bills. It can buy your spouse the things that they want. It can relieve all those financial stressors, but it cannot give you a sense of purpose. It cannot fill you spiritually. And if you really want to be rich, rich completely, that means you have to be rich financially and you have to be rich spiritually. More money is not going to give you that spiritual fitness. And that's where the real sense of fulfillment comes in. We talked a lot about inflation and therefore a million is not as much as it used to be. So how much money is enough? <sighs> Depends what you're asking. It's never enough. <laughs> <laughs> 10 million, 5% return on 10 million. Is that enough? Is 10 million the new million? Well, I think the average person in America today, if you had $2 million, you're going to be able to live comfortably. But again, you got to define comfort, right? Some people are okay driving a Toyota Camry. Some people want to drive a Rolls Royce. You can live comfortable on 2 million. I could live comfortable at $25,000 a year, but I don't want to, <laughs> you know what I mean? And so it's a matter of, uh, I think, I think that there's no number for that. I think more is the right answer. Um, what's the biggest mistake you think you've made in your life? Not being aggressive enough, not taking more risks, not thinking big enough. Do you mean financially, commercially? Financially. Um, I think I always knew I was an entrepreneur. I had to kind of go against the grain to go out and do that. And when I started, I was always very cautious. I mean, I was, I was taking risks, but I was taking cautious risks. But I think the bigger you think, the bigger your opportunities will be. And 
even as somebody who I think I think big, but now looking back, I realized, man, I could have been thinking a whole lot bigger. I remember when I started my YouTube channel, I never thought that I would ever hit a million subscribers. I used to joke that if I ever hit a million subscribers, I'm going to shut down my channel. I thought I thought big, and yet here I am putting these limitations on myself. When you put these limitations on yourself, you put yourself in a little box. If you're going to put yourself in a box, a mental box, you might as well give it a big box and think bigger. You might not hit your goals, but if you're thinking bigger, you might take bigger actions because it changes the way you think and it changes what you're working towards. So in that sense, being willing to think even bigger and take bigger risks working for something bigger. What do you know about money that you think most people do not know? Man, I think we covered a lot of that today. I think the big thing about money, well, we talked about money in the technical sense today. But the thing about money, I think we just touched on this, is that money only fills one part of your life. And I say that there are four, if you want to live a fulfilled life, there are four different places where you need to be fit. First, you have to be physically fit. Then you have to be mentally fit. Then you have to be spiritually fit. And then you have to be financially fit. All four of these things are separate from one another's. They can influence one another, but you have to be fit in each one of these if you want to truly live a fulfilled and rich life. Physically fit means I've got to be healthy. If you're on your deathbed, if you are morbidly obese, more money is not going to fix that issue. It might get you better doctors, but that mindset of wanting to be healthy is, is it's different, and it's, it's uh, something you have to work on. Mentally fit. Depression and anxiety are, are diseases. If you're struggling in here, in your head, more money is not going to fix the problem. And a lot of times what we see happen is people start chasing money thinking it's going to make me happy, right? More money is going to be the solution to all of my problems. It's going to find me love. It's going to give me friends when that's a different aspect of your life. Spiritually, your purpose, when people chase money, trying to chase their purpose, you will realize how much more emptier you will become. And then financially fit is the money. When you have all four of these, more money will allow you to live an even happier life. When you have more money, you don't got to stress about a lot of things. Now, they do go hand in hand, right? If you don't have money, you might be eating crap, and that could affect your physical fitness. When you don't have money, you're constantly stressed. That can put you into depression. It can give you anxiety. It can ruin your relationships. When you don't have money, you can feel lost and have no sense of purpose. But each one of these things have their own value that each person has to work to improve upon and learn upon. Warren Buffett says, or has said, if you can't manage your emotions, don't expect to be able to manage money. What are your thoughts on that? 100%. I think Warren Buffett is is 100% correct. The simplest way to kind of understand that from a financial perspective is investing is a long-term game. And that means you're going to have to think 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years into the future. And emotionally, we want the success today. And so it goes from our spending to our investments. When you go into the Gucci store, if you can't afford the Gucci handbag, emotionally, hey, just get 0% APR, put it on the credit card and buy it. That's the emotional decision. The financial decision is I need to go outside, make some money. Once I can afford it, now I can go out and buy it with investments. Okay, this is the path to building wealth. That way, you know, 10 years from now, I can build sustainable, real wealth. 
The emotional side is, let me try to flip this meme stock. That way I can make some money very quickly. And it's very easy to get caught up into the emotional side of money because that's the shiny, flashy, attractive thing that everybody keeps talking about. And until you get burned a few times, and I think all of us have to get burned a few times to realize, all right, I got to stop doing all this other crap and focus on building the long-term wealth because that's where real wealth is built. What's your biggest regret? It's <sighs> a good question. You know, I think about this a lot. I really don't regret much because the way that I look at things, everything is a life lesson. And so I've made mistakes. I've made mistakes financially. I've made mistakes non-financially. And I try to really look at everything as a lesson and not and not look at it as a regret. So for me, it's if I'm going to regret something, it, especially on the financial side, it's not taking more risks, not being crazier, not not doing more more things, and and being the the roadblock for myself. But besides that, you know, I, everything, all the mistakes that I made are things that I try to learn from. What about your most brutal life lesson? Oh man, brutal life lesson. Well, when you get on the internet. Everybody is a critic and everybody is a judge. I'm sure you've seen that. Yeah. So you, you get a dose of reality every single day, every time you post something on the internet. Uh, you know, so you learn, you learn what is your own opinions, what are your own beliefs and what you want to do. That's uh, probably a tough life lesson. Uh, financially, I would say it's, it's definitely of, well, a couple things like uh, in real estate, I made a YouTube video about my worst real estate deal ever. And that was a brutal life lesson. It didn't, I mean, on the, on a nominal dollar amount, it was significant, but it wasn't like huge sums of money. We're talking about tens of thousands of dollars, but on a mental perspective, it was one of the most stressful periods of my life because I've made every mistake possible. That was a brutal life lesson, but I learned a lot from it. Um, same thing in business. I wanted to really build our blog, but I wanted to do it passively because my time was spent elsewhere. I spent a lot more money on that, uh, probably around half a million dollars in, in terms of like consulting fees and employment fees and a bunch of other fees that I spent on it. I didn't spend my time on it. I just threw my money at this thinking that it's going to fix the problem. It went nowhere. It was a complete flop. We shut it down in, in 18 months or 24 months. That was a painful financial lesson where it's, you know, if I'm going to, money can't just solve problems. You got to go out and actually think through things and systemize it if you really want to build things. So about the future, what are you A, most excited about and B, most fearful of or scared about? I think that's the same answer. I think, uh, uh, there, you know, in terms of money, I think the exciting things is things are going to change. And that's also the fearful part, because you look at the situation that we're in financially, we have still high inflation, interest rates are rising, the economy is slowing, this is going to cause a lot of pain. That's the fearful part that people will get hurt financially, uh, especially people that are not prepared, that don't understand this, that don't see this, there's going to be a lot of pain because of that financially. On the flip side, that also creates the most opportunity. 
Recessions and market crashes create more millionaires than any other time. And those are opportunities for people who see them. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I worry in the sense of, man, it's going to be very bad, uh, you know, as things, if things continue to pro progress that way. But I also see the opportunity in that. But then you can say the same thing with technology. I, I, I like learning about technologies. And there's a lot of changes happening in technology from artificial intelligence to blockchain and, and everything else. I, I'm very excited about that, to see that happen in our lifetimes. I also fear because many of us don't know how to deal or use these technologies in ways that can amplify our lives instead of becoming our lives. We've already seen them with social media when people get so consumed with social media and it destroys their lives without them realizing it. But it also provides so much value, right? If you're an entrepreneur and you're using social media like what you're doing, it it can allow you to grow a business on the internet. But when you don't see that, it can also destroy you. What is the minority mindset? The minority mindset is a mindset. It has nothing to do with the way you look, your ethnicity, or your skin color. It's the mindset of thinking differently than the majority of people. It all started because I got scammed and screwed over. Well, I got scammed in a business that I was running. So I decided to put out a class on how to launch a business without getting screwed over. And I did it under the alias minority mindset because I said, you have to think differently than the majority of people if you want to become successful as an entrepreneur or as an investor. So it started off as a way for me to kind of just talk about things that I wish I knew when I was growing up. It slowly started to grow, uh, which you know, I, I never expected it to grow the way that it did. And now it has become, you know, just a part of me, the minority mindset, which has also spawned other businesses uh, like Briefs Media, which is my newsletter company, where now if somebody wants to stay up to date on what's happening and things like the financial news, we have something called Market Briefs, a free resource for that. We have another newsletter for entrepreneurs and business owners to stay up to date on the latest business trends. That's called Business Briefs. So the minority mindset started off just as a way for me to talk about the things that I wish I knew. And it has grown into something a whole lot bigger. But the, the real mindset is the mindset of thinking differently than the majority of people. This show is called Disruptors. What does the word disruptive mean to you? Oh, I love that word. Uh, disruptive means doing something different. It means changing something, going against the grain. And that's at the essence of what entrepreneurship is. Entrepreneurship is seeing something done in a certain way and wanting to do something different and wanting to break that and going against what's normal. That's what disrupting is. It's changing what's normal. And that's what makes entrepreneurship so exciting is because everybody looks at you like you lost your mind until you do it. And that's when that disruption becomes the new norm. And that's the fun. Just Preet, where can we follow you? What um, channels are you most active on? And have you got anything in the pipeline you can tell us about that's exciting? Absolutely. Well, first off, thank you for having me on. Um, you can watch my channel on YouTube, Minority Mindset, Instagram, Minority Mindset, uh, theminoritymindset.com. Or you can go to the newsletters like I was talking about, uh, Briefs Media is briefs.co. And then you can go to market briefs, briefs.co slash market. 
briefs.co slash business for business briefs where you can check out all those newsletters that are completely free. But uh, minority mindset everywhere otherwise. Jaspreet, thanks so much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. 